Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Gettysburg College in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania is hiring an assistant director of multimedia content on the communications and marketing team. Now, this person will help produce high-impact video and photography that connects with a diverse audience of prospective students, community members, and alumni. Companies, stop making excuses on your D&I efforts and post your job listing with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry, and I've got two big announcements to share with you today on this first day of Black History Month 2021. First up, our sister site, 28 Days of the Web, is back. Now, we've been doing 28 Days of the Web since 2014, and we honor a different Black designer or developer for every day in February. Head on over to 28daysoftheweb.com to follow along for this year. Think of it kind of like a black design, digital, creative advent calendar, if you want to look at it that way. Next up, Recognize is now accepting submissions for Volume 3. This year's theme is Reboot, which I think we could all use right about now. I know I could. Uh, If you don't know, Recognize is our design anthology with essays and commentary from indigenous designers and designers of color, the next generation of design voices. Check out the submission rules at recognize.design and send us what you got. Submissions will close on May 2nd at 5 p.m. Eastern time. So you have 90 days to submit. 90 days, three months. That's the longest submission period we've ever had. So I expect to see some good essays from y'all. Again, that's recognize.design. Read over the rules and please don't wait until the last minute to submit. You have 90 days. Get your submissions in early. Okay, now for this week's interview. I'm talking with graphic designer David John Walker, a design professor at Austin Pay State University in Nashville, Tennessee. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is David John Walker. And I am a professor at Austin Peay State University, and I teach uh, web design and graphic design. Well, first off, uh, Happy New Year to you. How are you feeling about the new year so far? I definitely wouldn't say indifferent. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm hopeful. I'm happy about the win or the Democratic pickup of the Senate seats in Georgia and looking forward to kind of how things shake out politically and socially considering, you know, all the latest developments. Yeah. If you could sort of give one word that would sum up 2020, what would that word be? Renaissance. Okay. For me. Explain that. 
it was a chance for everyone to reset and or really for the world to reset and recalibrate on what's important and what's unimportant to get back to the basics of what the real necessities are, you know, for success, for happiness, socially, like what things are important and what things aren't so important. Yeah, it did feel like with the, you know, suspension of services and, you know, depending on where you are in the country, whatever level of lockdown or restrictions you had, it did give people a lot of time for introspection and self-discovery and really sort of taking stock about the world around them, their immediate world. I think that's probably been good for everyone in some aspect. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I'm very thankful and fortunate to to have a job and to have kept a job and that the lockdown and the pandemic didn't affect me financially. Mm-hmm. So that's a worry that I didn't have. And I'm sure, you know, for those that either got laid off or were affected in that way, they, of course, had to have a much more intentional reset, <laughs> for a lack of better words. Yeah. But, you know, for those that had to stop going to work, but kept their jobs, they were able to work from home, or like I was, I was able to work from home, teach from home, complete design work from home, have more time with my family and my children, and really get to see life in a different space. Okay. We'll talk more about that later, but let's start off with the work that you're you're doing now. You mentioned you're teaching at Austin P. State University. Tell me a little bit about some of the courses that you teach. I was hired as a uh, a web design professor, uh, but I also teach graphic design courses as well. So I teach, we have two tracks or two courses, web design one and web design two. And with those two courses, the first course is a HTML and CSS course. And the second course is about interface design. So we talk through user experience and user interface development. Whereas at first class, we really dig into the building blocks of why websites are important, how people digest those, and then the preliminary code to get it going or how how to build those out. Now, it's weird because just the landscape of web design now, you have a lot of WYSIWYG editors or platforms, Squarespace, Wix, even GoDaddy has their own internal platform that you definitely have to teach students the reasons why things are built a certain way so that when they begin to design for websites, they understand the placements and the the historical placements of why things are in the header, why there's a feature area, why there's a content area and a footer and the navigation of the content so that the information can be digested, you know, properly by the viewership. Yeah. One thing I'm seeing even with WordPress is like, I'm seeing more and more of these page builder type of themes. Well, they've been around for a while, but I know back when I had my studio and I was doing WordPress development, everything was bespoke. You kind of just built the theme like you would build HTML and then you would add the WordPress tags and stuff. But now you can have just like a vanilla WordPress install and then install some page builder like Elementor or something like that. And it gives you that same sort of like WYSIWYG drag and drop no code sort of designing, but right. yeah, you don't really know the the building blocks behind it. You're just kind of like placing things on a page. And I guess based on the evolution of the web, 
you went from having large background images and text and other content flowing around those images, or at least the information that those images were providing, to now everything is modular. It's squares and rectangles, and they're either 100% wide or the boxes are rectangular, and you're just kind of fitting everything inside of those. And so when you look back, the websites, I guess pre, I'd say 2015, 2016, seem to be more artistic in a way. And not as white space dominant and square or rectangular. (laughs) Why do you think that's the case? You really see the shift once phones began being a primary mode of accessibility of websites. And so once computers became like an auxiliary way to pick up a website, then they made sure that websites could work through, you know, mobile means, whether it was a tablet, whether it was a phone, you know, whether your computer. So that rectangular view or the square view, you know, would scale based on your device. Yeah, I'm thinking back in the day, like, oh my God, this might have been maybe 2004, 2005, something like that, when you were really using tables. And I remember just how creative that used to be because someone would like, make the image in Photoshop and then export it with slices and then put it in Dreamweaver and they make an image map. And like, it felt like it was more creative. Of course, then you went to CSS and you had to figure out how to do all this stuff without using tables. Uh, and yeah, I do see that now. Like I, I was researching some stuff for work and I was looking up websites where you can get custom patches made, like, like a uh, Boy Scout and Girl Scout patches. And like all of the websites that do this looked exactly the same, like same structure. They just had different color schemes. I'm like, are they selling them the same template over and over again? Like there's no difference in the look or the feel or the expression. It almost is like it's very templatized. Of course, you know, very modular, like you mentioned, but it sort of takes the the design or at least the the artfulness out of it in a way. Yeah, I mean, and the only real difference is the content itself. In that Web Design 2 class that I teach, the first project, we look at different types of websites, right? So we look at athletic websites, which that could be anything from like teams or athletic clothing or anything in that way. We look at business websites and then we look at leisure or lifestyle websites. And so what we do is we break down or I have the students go and pull 15 different sites and compare the 15 to find all of the similarities. They come back with a complete list of how all of these sites are basically the same and they have very limited differences. And it's specific to, I guess, how the the ethos of that genre you know, has been set up. And so you go from one site, you could look at Nike to Adidas to Under Armour to Reebok to Puma. And the only things that might be different are the use of white space or the brand colors. The typography is even in the same family. You know, it's like sans serif, heavyweight fonts. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and they find that people are accustomed to being communicated in that way. I feel like with logo redesigns, we started seeing that same sort of thing, too, where you companies used to have these more expressive, playful type logos. And now things have kind of normalized to a 
humanist, sans serif, kind of basic looking font. Like Google did that. Pinterest did that. Foursquare has done that. There's a couple other companies, but yeah, that's really interesting. Like sort of what that change in design means in terms of communication. Cause I guess with some of these places, they've evolved from being, you know, maybe just initial tools to more being like resources and platforms that people depend on, especially with Google. Like Google used to just be a search engine and now Google is everywhere. (laughs) But it's so weird, right? Like when we were growing up, I'm in my, I'll be 40 this year. Me too. You would always see like the differences in, or it wasn't really hitting at that time in our younger years, but the differences in typography and how things were put out there. Like, Banks now are using humanist lettering or letter forms. You see folks like Ally or Greenwood, and they're not using the traditional serifs that would suggest conservatism and this sort of class. And now they want to be approachable. They want to be friendly. They want to say modern or fresh or innovative. And so it's it's run the gamut. You you can see it in healthcare, you can see it in in the financial sector. You see it in these tried and true fashion houses now that have changed from serifs to sans serif typeface uses. And it's really strange like it we can't homogenize everything. <laughs> like there needs to be some sort of difference, but I guess as as the world blends, I guess that's the point. Or it seems like that's the point, that as the world blends and as people ascend from varying socioeconomic classes, that they don't necessarily feel like they've left where they are. Mm. That's a really kind of poetic way of putting it. (laughs) I wouldn't have thought about it that way. I mean, it's strange. (laughs) You know, you look at, at a bank, you know, that may have had a certain entry point, you know, for you to invest in, but they're branded the same way the gap is. What does that really mean? Does that mean we're open to you or does it mean we're open to all? Yeah. And it it really begs the question of what's the authenticity of what is being pushed out there to us? Because of course there are barriers actually, once you decide to either apply or walk through the door, you know, and then there are people there. But as far as the brand and the brand approachability, what is that saying or speaking to to the patron or the viewer? Yeah, I see it a lot on Instagram. So like there's a lot of sort of, I don't know, pop up wellness brands. I guess that's the best way that I would put it that advertise on Instagram any number of different like skincare items or salves or medicines or things like that. And I noticed they all kind of have the same sort of pastel-y color scheme, the same kind of rounded, chunky serif font. Like they usually pretty much all use Recoletta from Latino type, but they all have like the same typeface. And like, it's a warm, comforting feel and like it's designed to make you trust it even though this is someone selling something in a bottle that has not been approved by the fda or or maybe has went through any level of lab testing but it looks nice and it's on instagram and like these pretty people are using it so maybe i should buy it yeah (laughs) let's bring it back to your teaching how has it been teaching remotely it's been a mixed bag 
I first started teaching remotely when the lockdown happened in March. Funny story, I was on a study abroad trip with some students from my university and my older two children were with me and we barely made it back into the country in time. Like oh, wow. our, plane, our plane arrived, uh, I think it was like 11.15 and the border closed at 11.59. Wow. <laughs> so we were in bed in London at 2 a.m. and our phones just started blowing up. Hey, the president said the the borders are going to close. Are you guys going to be here in time? And so fortunately, our flight, you know, was not canceled and we and we got back. But our university gave us additional week of spring break to get ourselves ready and together for online teaching, online remote teaching. And so the way I run my classes, our design cohort of professors we all use Slack as a communication tool for which the students can turn in work, present work, as well as critique work in live time during class and time outside of class. I mean, we also use Slack to upload resources, upload our syllabi, you know, really just communicate. And so that made it easy or easier to teach because we were always had that component of the class going. Where it's been difficult, though, I mean, you've sat through design classes before where you have the way studio classes run, they're three-hour blocks. So you have lecture for a portion of the class, and the rest of the class is for you to actually work in real time and get some ideas out, talk it through with your classmates and your professor, and you get some real-time feedback. I mean, the downside to the online teaching is not being able to see them make real time choices where you can say, oh, OK, look, I need you to you're not using white space effectively or the image. There's not enough enough margin here for your type or the scale of this image could be larger or the colors are off or that's not a good typographic choice. And so you just end up having to wait until they either submit something or load it up on Slack or they're talking to you during class about the work. So it sounds like there's just a little bit of a, a delay, I guess, between being able to give that feedback as opposed to doing it in real time. Yes. The class just moves a little bit slower. But again, like that's on the design side. I also, again, teach web design classes. We get on Zoom. They're watching me code or they code along with me <laughs> in HTML and CSS. Some students readily get it. And then some, because HTML and CSS kind of is like a foreign language, some don't, or it takes them a little bit longer for the light bulb, you know, to come on. And it's nothing against them. It's just that coding doesn't click with everyone. Like there's a certain level of patience you have to have to make sure that the syntax is correct <laughs> and, that, and that you don't miss the small details. Mm -hmm. Quotes and parameters and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's really the crux. Now, aside from like Slack and Zoom, are there other tools that you're using for I guess in a way it's sort of like pair programming. I'm thinking of tools like Glitch or Code Sandbox or, or something where you can sort of code in an environment where they can see it in real time as opposed to, well, I mean, you also are using Zoom, but I'm just wondering if you're using any other kind of like online tools as well. No, I haven't. I, over the Christmas break, 
um, explored some of those. So I'll be looking to try those out, you know, this upcoming semester. Okay. What do you enjoy about teaching? Gosh, I mean, it's a lot. There's a lot to enjoy about teaching. One is, is seeing them connect what you talk about in class to real-time environments away from class or seeing them start to understand what systems are and kind of why they are out for public consumption. And then additionally, like once they graduate, they're doing like really, really cool stuff. And they kind of keep you in the loop on what's happening in the field and what they're working on. Like I've got a student now who just landed a a brand design role at Netflix. Oh, nice. I mean, that's a job that I dream, I would dream of. (laughs) (laughs) He also did a a rebrand for Afrotech. I mean, he's been doing some amazing stuff. And so, no, it's it's great to, I'd like to give a shout out to Anthony Crawford. (laughs) But yeah, it's great. It's great to be in the history of people that are going on to change culture or to affect, you know, how other people in the public make decisions. Yeah. I mean, I'd imagine it's good to be a part of their success, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's literally what we do. I mean, we sit down, we think about the nuances of what people think about and what they marinate on. And then we generate something that will help them make that decision, whether it helps them to choose something on the grocery aisle, whether it helps them choose where to buy gas or what fitness equipment to buy or what clothing to buy, like all of that. Like we have a a great stake, you know, in, in helping people make choices. Yeah. Let's kind of, you know, switch gears here a little bit. You mentioned before we started recording, you told me that you're in Nashville. Is that where you grew up also? Yeah, I did grow up in Nashville. What was it like growing up there? It was a good time. It wasn't rural, but it wasn't, it's definitely not Atlanta. (laughs) (laughs) Where you are. My parents, you know, were were college graduates and and did their thing. My dad was a college professor also. He was in music education and my mother was, or is, a dietitian. And so she worked as a coordinator for nutrition at the local school board for Nashville. And so we grew up, we went to, I've got a sibling, my sister, uh, Danielle Walker-Whiteside. And ironically, she is in education too. We're actually both at the same university. Yes. Yes, it's kind of wild that we both ended up in education. But yeah, we grew up, we went to public school. And the school we went to, it wasn't that diverse. I mean, Nashville's population at the time, and I would say still is maybe 15%. African-American. And so we were always in the minority, not just the minority, the extreme minority. And so I've got a picture of my sixth grade class. And out of that sixth grade class of of maybe 18, I think five of us are black. And it was the same thing in high school, being 15 or 20 percent. And so I'd always you know, grown up being around or being in the minority, being around other cultures or, or and being around mostly white colleagues. My first real predominantly black experience was going to Tennessee State University. <laughs> so, you know, like yourself, you went to Morehouse and I don't know what your K-12 was like. 
But yeah, my first all black experience outside of church and the youth group was going to Tennessee State. Wow. Yeah, my growing up was uh, it's kind of the opposite of that in a way. I mean, so I grew up in, in Selma, Alabama. Folks that have listened to the show know that. And it's, I don't know, the makeup has changed a lot since I grew up there. But it was, I, I feel like I was always pretty much surrounded by a large black population. Like, but that was honestly mostly because of segregation. Like, white folks just kind of went, had their own part of town. They had their own schools and they didn't want us in them. And so because of that, like mostly the Selma city school system, the public school system is largely black because of that. Now the private schools are a different story. We've got, uh, Metaview Christian and Morgan Academy, which is named after John T. Morgan, who was part of the, I think he was part of the Klan or he was a Confederate general. Although I feel like the intersection between those two is probably a perfect circle, but they had their own schools and institutions and we just were not allowed there they or, or rather they were structured to keep black people out i don't want to necessarily say we weren't allowed there because there may have been one or two black students at those schools but with tuition and you know just general racism and discrimination they didn't make it easy you know so my k through 12 was pretty much all black and then i went to atlanta which is a pretty black city and i went to an all black college <laughs> so I think my first experience of being actually, honestly, like around a lot of white people was when I started working like in corporate America. That was sort of my first experience. It was sort of the, I guess, kind of the opposite of what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, and that kind of reminds me of how my mom grew up. She grew up in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, where UAPB is or University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. And they are predominantly a uh, black town based on white flight. I loved my black college experience. It didn't feel like it was a validation. It felt like I went home for school and it was a really safe, a safe place to experiment and to learn and to, and to grow. Now, did you sort of get the spark for design when you were at Tennessee state or were you like exposed to it earlier? Like you mentioned, you know, your dad taught music education. So you kind of at least had some exposure to the arts in general. Well, Kind of the way we grew up, we were always, yes, exposed to the arts, but no, as far as graphic design. Okay. The high school that I went to in Nashville, Martin Luther King, was a magnet school uh, based on health sciences and engineering. And so when I went off to school, my initial major was biology. I came home, I guess, after my first semester and told my parents that I was done with biology, or at least I wasn't interested in continuing on the scientific path and that there were limited discoveries to, to be had. <laughs> that just sounds crazy. It sounds uh, very analytical. Yeah. Limited discoveries. <laughs> and that I was either going to go into psychology or go into art. Now, realistically, I uh, also share with my parents, like the fastest way to get out of college was to look at those two tracks because my credits would all transfer and I wouldn't lose time. And so when I said that, my mom was like, psychology, Mm, I don't know. Art, Mm, I don't know. But I know a graphic designer that you could talk to. Yeah. Now, mind you, growing up, there was like no talk of graphic design at all. It was exposure to artists like Jacob Lawrence and Aaron Douglas. Being Being here in Nashville, 
Aaron Douglas founded the art program at Fist. And so that was the grand exposure to art in that way. Not Jacob, but yeah, Aaron Douglas. And then you had Ted Jones and and David Driscoll and some other folks, you know, that that I remember being around their artwork and seeing their artwork and it being integral as far as the inspiration goes. And so my mom introduced me to this guy by the name of John Gurton, who had a design business for a, for Nashville's megachurch. <laughs> he took me under his wing. And so that was my first exposure to graphic design. Now, my the program at uh, Tennessee State, which has changed a lot, we really didn't have a graphic design program. It was studio art, and you got literally a smattering of everything. I mean, it's like you go to a buffet and they tell you to take one spoonful of each course. <laughs> when I came out of school or when I graduated, I couldn't necessarily get a, a graphic design job. I didn't have I didn't have the exposure to it. And so I interned with John's company and kind of learned the ropes of pre-press and digital files and starting to talk to clients and all of that good stuff. And that kind of prepared me to move forward. Let's kind of back it up a, a little bit here because, you know, as you're mentioning this, I'm, you know, because we're right around the same age, I'm thinking like to myself, like what it was like when I was, uh, when I was in school and studying and everything. So I ended up getting my degree in math because Morehouse, didn't really have an art program. Also, I sort of started out actually in the STEM fields, and then I wanted to design for the web. I was like majoring in computer science, computer engineering, and telling my advisor, I want to design websites. And my advisor being like, oh, the internet's just a fad. Like, no, like nobody's going to be doing this in a few years. Like, we don't do that here, is what he was saying. And basically said that if you want to do that, you need to change your major. So, I did um, and changed it to math, but I was always still kind of doing design work on the side. Like I did the the scholarship page for, well, the scholarship that I had at Morehouse, I designed their web page and I would do little web page stuff here and there. I would use a pirated copy of Photoshop and design CD covers and stuff like that, you know, just trying to like, I don't even want to necessarily say cut my teeth because it still sort of felt like a hobby because like I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't really know where I was going to go with this because I didn't go to an art school and I wasn't around people that I guess would be able to expose me to that. When you're saying like, oh, I couldn't really find a job once I graduated. That's real because there weren't a lot of programs out that even taught this stuff. And most places that you went, unless you just had like a pretty strong portfolio, like it was hard to get your foot in the door. Oh, I mean, it was a grand hustle. I remember one of my professors, Professor McBride, my senior year, he said, well, all artists don't have to be poor. And we said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, you got folks that do caricatures. You got folks that make artwork for T-shirts or screen print and they do well or folks that print posters. And we're like, oh, okay. So one Saturday got me and he took me and a classmate of mine, David Ferguson, to Anderson. It was called Anderson Studios in Nashville, which was a screen printing shop. And my pal, David, is an illustrator. And I think he still does illustration. And he was doing like comic illustration at the time. And he said, hey, man, like we need to 
we can put some, if I, he said, I'll design these characters and put them on t-shirts and we can sell shirts at homecoming. That was our first entrepreneurial venture. We printed up some shirts and based on, you know, our professor taking us to the screen printing place. And I got to see real time, like how the designers at the screen printing place set up artwork for screen printing. And so I, he on, on one side of it was doing the artwork. I, on the other side, was preparing the art for for separations and all that good stuff. And from there, like, I literally just asked them as many questions as I could. And I learned merchandising. I learned <laughs> file setup. I learned really how to start, how to sell on the retail side as well as what the markups were on the wholesale side. Started getting and buying my own shirts. And so before we left school, we were starting to do shirts for clubs across campus. We were doing shirts for um, departments at the university, which, again, like gave us real time knowledge on how to run a business in a safe way without going broke attempting to do it. And so the thing that I absolutely love about being with in the you know, in the community of the black colleges that you really get to establish some relationships and get to try some things out, you know, without taking major losses. And that's the catalyst for really everything else. Like there's a, it kind of gave you a, a fearlessness to continue to try it out. And I mean, I would imagine during that time, you know, you're you're doing print work with t-shirts and you said you were also kind of doing, were you still doing the mega church stuff then too? Yeah. I was just an intern. Like I wasn't doing really the design work for them. I was only doing like small stuff like typesetting bulletins, you know, and and things that were really inconsequential. <laughs> like just no pressure, low pressure type stuff. But really getting in the vein of, you know, the workflow of a design agency or design studio studio you you uh, started a studio called realistic after you graduated from tennessee state university is that right i did yeah i did so those t-shirt clients went from being only t-shirt clients to being graphic design clients and one of them in particular that that really kind of kicked it off for me was working for the university and i took them on as a client as a contractor for the media relations department and they asked me to do a couple campaigns that included out of home work, like uh, out of home pieces like billboards and bus benches and uh, magazine ads, as well as some really preliminary at the time, because this was like 2006 digital pieces, you know, for the web. And so it was nice really to really collaborate in a much different way. Right. Like at that point, I was starting to talk about systems, not a one off for a T-shirt or a one off for a party flyer or for a church bulletin. And so, yeah, like now you're kind of doing like the full or full spectrum kind of work in a way. Yeah. And really having to understand how systems work and the responsibility of making sure that. Uh, the message com- the message is communicated clearly and on brand. I mean that first that first project with them was my first my first go at dealing with institutional standards, <laughs> institutional brand standards. 
so a lot of this stuff you're doing, you're really kind of learning. I don't want to say on the job, but you're you're learning as you're picking up new clients. So it's almost like a second education. Yeah, it absolutely was a second education. I mean, because what I learned during undergrad, we had a desktop publishing course. We had an intro web design course of which the professor at the time would come in, click on a YouTube video in its infancy and say, watch this and do it and turn that project in. That was it for a semester. And then, yeah, it was intro to desktop publishing, photography, and web design. That was our exposure to graphic design. Of course, uh, since then, it has changed. You know, they offer, um, they offer I think, three, three levels of graphic design classes in the studio art. They don't have, a, they don't offer a BFA in design. But they at least <laughs> get the students now started strongly on typography and graphic design basics. Do you remember like that that sort of time between I want to say it was like between 2004 and maybe like 2007, 2008, where there was this there was this really big shift in web design from going from tables to CSS for web page layout. Do you remember that? Oh, absolutely. Because in in the mid in the midst that transition, like Macromedia Flash was everything. So it was it was tables, then flash, which had all of these like weird animations and, and fun stuff. And then you jump into table list design with, with HTML and CSS. And that was strange because like I, I self-taught I self-taught Flash you know, while I was in school and was attempting to figure out how to sell that stuff once I graduated or at least sell uh, Flash websites once I graduated. And quickly, <laughs> it was in rapid rapid succession, like folks railed against Flash and they decided, well, that's not the way we're going to code websites. Like it's not sustainable and it's unsupported and there are a lot of bugs, security problems. And then it just seemed a lot easier and digestible to build using HTML, you know, paired with CSS. It was kind of serendipitous that when I decided to go to graduate school, I took four years between graduation and graduate school to like actually build a portfolio that allowed me even to apply <laughs> to graduate school. Like <laughs> I didn't have anything that would have qualified me for graduate school coming out of under out of my undergrad program. What made you decide to go to graduate school? I wanted some options. I had my first kid when I was 24, and that was like six months after I graduated undergrad. And I raised him as a stay-at-home parent and building the business all at the same time. And I said, I need to go ahead and get this next degree. Both of my parents, my dad was a PhD, my mom has a master's, and so there was that unintentional pressure <laughs> of following in the family's footsteps to making sure that I at least match the educational, you know, the, the educational top or at least educational levels of, of my parents. And so I wanted to have the option of teaching and to go back to school to get more education as far as design goes. I mean, because my first degree was strictly studio art and you're learning to draw, you're learning to paint, and you're getting a little bit of exposure to, you know, the digital tools. And so I wanted to take some time and inundate myself in 
graphic design so I could pick up the vernacular. I could pick up the feel. I could now understand when I walk into a meeting, you know, to talk about design with other folks, whether it's an in-house designer or a client that we're we're speaking the same language and that I'm not spitballing it or only saying what I feel. So you kind of wanted that legitimacy or that that's what the degree would offer you in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And so from that, yeah, I went to the university of Memphis and got my MFA in graphic design, but, or not, but, and consequentially my graduate school advisor was a web design professor. And so in a way, it was kind of like a web design program. <laughs> so it was like graphic design, but because he was the lead advisor, it was more web design focused, which abs- which made a lot of sense, you know, at the time. And it definitely helped land. It helped make me marketable once I decided to look for teaching jobs post-graduation. And now you've been teaching for, what, almost a decade now, right? Yes. I mean, Fall of this year will be 10 years. How have you seen design education change during that time? A lot of it has moved towards digital. I mean, of course, like the design basics are, are always taught, you know, as far as form and composition and, and clean typography and the marriage of, of type and image. But now the output is definitely different. You know, you're having to think about the different ways that you're, you know, putting those images out. You know, is it in print? Of course, the latest movement or one of the movements is that print is dead, or at least that's been like the last probably four or five years that print is dead. But graphic designers and people alike, you know, really enjoy the tactility of artifacts. So print really won't die. I mean, we've seen newspapers and some magazines go away or at least go away in physical form. But you still have to, as a designer, lay those things out as if they are you know, being printed. But the design education has shifted in a way that you now have all of these have all of these platforms that you can deliver these visual artifacts to. You know, you've got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, now Snapchat, I mean even LinkedIn and in other places where the content has to be supported by some level of imagery. And um yeah, I mean the shift the shift still is on the basics of design, but the the mode of delivery is definitely part of the consideration. How about students? Have you seen, like, not necessarily the type of student, but have you seen student behavior change? Student behavior? I'll say I have seen student behavior change. And the way that believe that I've observed the student behavior to have changed is that, that the students don't go outside as much. I feel like we're in that generation or the last few generations that parents made them go outside and we communicated with the kids on our street. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it changes the outlook, you know, for which students bring forth ideas in the classroom. If their primary outlook or their primary social outlets are online communication, that's a lot different than, you know, the in-person communication, which of course can affect design decisions. It also affects what they see aesthetically, right? Like if they're accustomed to, to looking at, at video games or, or these electronic portals, that's not the same as what you would see in the wild. 
you know, through publications or or through other touch points for design. What would you say your students kind of teach you? I mean, you said earlier that they kind of keep you abreast of some stuff that's happening, but like in general, do you feel like they teach you things or have taught you things over the years? Yeah. I mean, they're into all kinds of stuff. I mean, I've got students that talk about cryptocurrency. I've got students that are well-versed in online gaming and online gaming teams, of which that has really opened the gateway and the interest for for students to be more interested in animation and the coupling of animation plus design. You know, there's a lot that they that I learned from them. Digital trends that they're seeing and, and movements online <laughs> that I may not necessarily be versed in or even looking for. Give me an example of that. So esports, that same student that I was telling you about that works at Netflix now, he started uh, or is starting an esports platform. <laughs> and so now you're seeing how design is is affecting it in that way. Like one of my pals in Atlanta designed digital uniforms for the Atlanta Hawks, <laughs> which is pretty crazy to think like these pro sports franchises also have digital franchises as well and they have teams and they while the in real life players are playing you have a team of digital players that are playing as the players on you know their respective fields or courts and they're designing graphics for that stuff and so it just seems like anytime there's a a wrinkle in culture that there becomes another opening, there's just another space that design can move into, which is fantastic because it keeps us in the fore for learning about, you know, what's next and what's coming next and what do we have to design for, you know, that's coming next and how is that going to, how is that going to be shaped or what aesthetic can we give it, you know, so that it's, so that it becomes palatable and understandable for the next generation of people. Now, there's been kind of this, you know, pretty regular conversation, I would say maybe within the past three or four years, I think it's intensified, but there's been this conversation around, you know, black design educators, you know, the lack of them in the in the whole educational field, et cetera. What are your thoughts on that? Like, what do you think contributes to that lack? And like, how can we encourage more black designers to go into teaching? There are a number of, of black designers out there and I've met a lot of them over the past year, <laughs> become good friends. Kelly Walters and Ann Barry, Kalina Sales, Ashley Doughty. And we're present. We're just not as present because it's not it's not really pushed in our community. Graphic design still is a, a very new landscape to African Americans and people of color as a viable profession. And so I think the more people of color dig into becoming designers, that opens the pathway for them to become design educators. So it's sort of like a like a chain reaction almost. Absolutely. You know, if I hadn't become a designer first, then I wouldn't have thought of becoming a design educator to expose additional people of color to the profession itself. You know, of course, I'm just one person, but... I can touch a lot of people. I mean, just in my household, I've got a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old. And at this point, because 
I've taken them around and I talk about design and they see the work out there. They're well versed in. Well, I won't say well versed, but, you know, by proxy, they understand the power of design or what design can do or where design can go. It's not just websites. It's not just political campaigns, but they understand, you know, the correlation between design and brands or brands and design. Do they kind of want to follow in your footsteps? They've had that exposure to it and they see you teaching and everything? I don't know. I've not asked them that question. Yeah, I've not asked them if they want to be designers. But I know just based on, you know, my observations on how they make choices on what they wear (laughs) or the products they buy, that it kind of the design process has definitely, you know, influenced how they make choices. It's interesting, you know, you talked earlier about, you know, designing apparel, you know, starting out designing T-shirts and stuff. And it's amazing now how simple it is to, like, start designing T-shirts and selling them online. Like, you can really do it at this point in less than an hour. You can set up a Shopify account. You can go to a direct-to-garment printer like Printify or Printful. And if you have a few, you know, high-res designs you can like start selling them like it's it's almost ridiculous how easy it is now yeah i mean i mean with the access there's really limited barriers of entry yeah it's really limited barriers of entry if you come up with something that people can can feel or at least be attracted to then they'll they'll push it i mean there's definitely a level of authenticity that brands have to have in order for those for those initiatives to thrive. But of course, like the pathway to entry, you know, is very, very low. But back to I was gonna go back to the, you know, the black education piece. Yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of conversation and discourse now about the decolonization of design to trying and to well, I would almost say revised history in a way that it's inclusive of people of color so that we're not just consumers of it, but we also have played a role and acknowledge the fact that we've played a role in how design has evolved, you know, with with within our history. It's important that that there are people of color that can also deliver that history so that it is not whitewashed or at least I don't know. I, I almost want to say it kind of validates it in a way. No, I mean, it puts it in the in the correct context, you know. I think about the, the people that I've interviewed on here and how few of them had any kind of Black design educators in general. And they often would describe their experience going through design school or even learning design, you know, from non-Black professors as being rough because they didn't see themselves in it and the educators didn't really teach not necessarily to them, but the the design education that they were being taught, black people weren't in it at all. Yeah, or there are only a few. I mean, if you if you look at the AIGA medalist list, it's it might be ten. <laughs> yeah, it, it might be ten, and they're not even talked about in the classroom unless it's something intentional. And so that that just echoes art education in general. You're going through art school and. You know, you rarely see black artists come up, much less design, you know, much less design history. Speaking of that, you know, as we're recording this, and I think it'll be going on by the time 
this interview airs, but Silas Monroe, who has been a, a past guest on the show, is putting together this great series of like, I guess they're lectures from black design educators, largely called BIPOC design history. It's amazing to see those kinds of initiatives happen now, because I think even five years ago, you wouldn't see anything like that. No. And just to have a collection, black educators get on there and talk about it, you know, says a lot as far as the movement to be more inclusive and the movement to integrate persons of color in in the design lexicon. What do you want to accomplish this year? Lately, I, or at least last year, I uh, started lettering or hand lettering. We had a guest lecturer come and speak at the university, uh, Nina Stossinger of Tobias Ferrer Jones's Type Studio. Yeah. and gave she came and gave a lecture and did a workshop with the students and I really enjoyed participating in that workshop and learning how to construct letters by hand. I mean, of course, going through elementary school or at least our elementary school, they taught us print and they taught us cursive. They don't teach cursive at all now. Really? No, not at all. I've got a thirteen-year-old and a sixteen-year-old. And I'm in the current process of teaching them cursive writing. Like they can read it, but they don't have a natural inclination of how to physically write in cursive. Wow. Yeah. So education has changed a lot in that sense. Yeah. But from that workshop, I really, really enjoyed it. And so once we went on COVID lockdown, I decided in May of last year, to attempt to litter. And so I challenged myself to uh, litter every day for 15 days. And that went beyond 15 days to almost 243 days <laughs> of lettering. And, you know, it's evolved into this personal practice. And it almost feels like a respite in a way from the, the noise of the news and the noise of family time and, and everything else to just to be able to dive into something that it's kind of passion driven. So this year, you know, I, I look forward to doing lettering projects and, you know, exploring where that takes me conceptually, uh, because I didn't have a, you know, a typographic class in undergrad and had a, a type one class in graduate school. So there wasn't an exposure to the deep mechanics of building letters or typefaces. I look forward to exploring a good deal further. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like what what kind of work do you want to be doing? Gosh, like this year, I, well, late last year, I got asked to do some environmental graphic design work for a museum that's opening here in Nashville, the National uh, Museum of African American Music. And so I look forward to doing more environmental graphic design work. For this project in particular, I'm actually using some type or type from Trey Seals, from Vocal Type. Yeah, uh, no, Trey. Yeah. To adorn, to adorn one of the corridors in the museum. So I, I look forward to, um, you know, seeing that installed and how uh, people respond to the work. And I also do a lot, a good deal of work in the political sphere. You know, so again, like helping people make decisions 
I'm on the Design for Democracy Task Force for AIGA. So just continuing to help folks make well-informed decisions and that, you know, the design work speaks volumes. Yeah, I think certainly, if anything, these past few years have shown us, it's that design is a lot more powerful than I think people may initially have thought it was, just in terms of how people have used it for disinformation and and all sorts of other nefarious campaigns. Like, design can be a very powerful tool in the wrong hands. So, um, (laughs) you know, I I think it's good that you're on on a task force that's able to kind of let designers know the power that comes with that. Oh, it's really, it's really, really important, you know, for us to be diligent in what we put out there. I feel like at times we don't put out enough stuff to combat the disinformation, but we, uh, you know, of course we don't know where all of the disinformation is and don't really, and we aren't necessarily interested in going down those rabbit holes considering how controversial they can be. You know, but it it definitely takes, you know, courage to be a design activist, you know, in that way. Well, just to kind of, you know, wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? So I've got my Instagram handle is at David John Walker, and that's J-O-N, not J-O-H-N. And I'm on Twitter as well at David underscore John. All right. Sounds good. Well, David John Walker, I want to thank you so much for for coming on the show and for really talking about what it's like being a design educator and and how it is that we can sort of get more people into this field. You know, I think certainly with the way that the world has changed and a lot more people are at home and learning through alternative means, it's good to see that, you know, there's still people out here that are teaching design and they're reaching students even in ways that, you know, probably weren't traditional prior to all of this. And that you're also expanding your own knowledge, doing more, like you said, prior to prior to us recording, you were saying never stop learning. And it certainly seems like that's something that you are not only living, but also picking up as well for yourself. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the opportunity to chat Big, big thanks to David John Walker. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about David and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? What did you think about Revision Path overall? Don't be a stranger. Let me know. Hit me up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path. Or better yet, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let the world know about the show because it really helps us grow and reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.